Hello and welcome to another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. I'm Dina Verling, founder and CEO of Project Purple and the host of the podcast. We have another interview for you coming up with a very special guest after a few quick updates. We are on pace for another record year. 2022 was our best year yet. And I just want to thank everyone who has supported, donated, or participated in a Project Purple event so far in 2023 because 2023 is already on pace to be better than 2022. So it's just amazing uh, what our our community has allowed us to do and all the great programs and services that we're offering to patients, research. Um, It's just really, really special to be in this seat and to see all the amazing things happening here in 2023, which is, like I said, on pace for another record year, which is just, it's a blessing. Visit our website at projectpurple.org and make sure to follow us on social media to stay up to date on all things Project Purple, wherever you are on social. We are even on threads and TikTok. Uh, Make sure you follow us. Without further ado, let's meet our special guest today coming to us from Sunny, beautiful Martha's Vineyard, uh, author Elizabeth Benedict of Rewriting Illness, A View of My Own. Welcome to the Project Purple podcast, Liz. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So I know full disclosure, I, I, I say there's a lot of corny terms. These are corny terms, but I always say like full disclosure, like I'm not making, I'm not making anything up, but I know this has been a while in the making. I know we, uh, we tried to have you on earlier um, in, I think the like late spring and just timing and logistics. Mm-hmm. So we had to push this out quite a bit. And I know we were playing catch up uh, before we hit record. So there's been a lot of like positive things happening with the book. So we're excited to get to that. So okay. um as I was saying, the first segment, and, and some people may know your name, others may not. So what we always do is our first segment is always the guest opportunity to kind of share their background, what brings them here to the podcast today. Um, as I said before we hit record, you know, you can stay as high level as you want. You can get into the weeds. I'll be taking notes. Um, and with that, uh, the microphone's yours, Liz, to share how you got here to the podcast today. Well, thank you. Uh, I guess it, it's a pleasure to be here, but I guess a bittersweet pleasure because I'm here because I had a, a run in with cancer and I, and your whole show is about cancer. So none of us wants to be in this club. Let's yeah. um, either. But but all too many of us are, whether through our own bodies or our loved ones. Um, I I'm a novelist and a journalist and an essayist, and I've been publishing books um, since 1985. I started out publishing novels. I've written five novels, and uh, I taught creative writing for many years, for many decades, at places like Princeton and Columbia and Barnard, Swarthmore. And uh, then I moved into journalism, and I did. I've done a lot of reviewing of books and writing about books and more and more writing personal essays. I've written, I've edited three volumes of essays. I had ideas for essays that I wanted to start public conversations about. And so the way I did that was I invited a lot of well-known writers to write on these topics and they, I was lucky enough to sell them as books. Um, One of them was asking a 30 well-known writers who had changed their lives, who who had been their mentors or their influences. That was the easiest book in the world to get people to write for because people would would say yes to me almost before I finished asking them. And every uh, most writers have someone or a book or an experience that, they're grateful to. So that book was called Mentors, Muses, and Monsters. And that came out in, I think, 2009. And then I did another anthology where I asked a bunch of famous women, uh, not just writers, but other other well-known women, about a favorite gift from their mothers that encapsulated the re- the relationship. And a lot of people think when they hear that, that's just uh, sort of schmaltzy and sentimental. But I asked people who had complicated relationships with their mothers, not not just hearts and flowers. And so the essays were very hard hitting and deep and interesting. And that book was called What My Mother Gave Me. That was a New York Times bestseller. 
Uh, and I loved doing that book. It was based on a, a gift from my mother that kind of I was a I was obsessed by, uh, and that encapsulated our relationship, our our sort of not difficult but you know somewhat troubling relationship. Um, and I then started a business helping kids get into college, and so I spend a lot of time right now helping kids write their college app essays, which is a whole new genre of writing. And um, and in the middle of all that, I found a big lump under my arm uh, in the summer of 2017. And I went to the doctor immediately within 12 hours. And it took four months to be diagnosed with lymphoma. Even though I was in New York City, I had insurance. I have sort of a big mouth. Um, I'm not shy, um, but uh, many, I, I, so uh, I had a long time to think about what it meant to be sick, to think about being sick, to read about being sick, to be jerked around by doctors, to be jerked around by the medical system, and also to be uh, intimidated as I was by the possibility of really being very sick. And um, even though I do have sort of a, I, I'm a New Yorker and, you know, I'm not shy and uh, I'm not a kid. Um, and I, I think I, I'm pretty good at defending myself in difficult situations. Um, when I had this uh, looming illness or what might be an illness, it was hard to be an advocate for myself because I was so afraid of what might be wrong with me and of what the answers would be if I pushed people. But so uh, I think if if I'd found the lump and gone to the doctor and got treated right away for my condition, I wouldn't have written a book. But I think because I had so many months of experiences with the medical world, uh, I, I had I had some things to write about. Um, and I, I went from having really sort of patchwork, do-it-yourself, crappy medicine to eventually literally finding the best lymphoma doctor in the world. I mean, I, I ended up just by accident getting this man's name when I was finally diagnosed. And somebody said, this man treated my mother 15 years ago. I don't know if he's still working. And I called him up and everything changed. So it went from really crummy medicine to world-class medicine it, very overnight. Um, and so I, I had, uh, and I mean, this man was literally the, a world expert in lymphoma. He had developed the lymphoma protocols. He, he knew everything there was to know. And I had a... Um, I had what was considered what is considered a treatable kind of lymphoma, which of course was a great relief. But when when you when you have cancer, they do now genetic testing to figure out what the precise treatment is. And when they did the genetic testing, they found that I had a mutated gene that the doctor said would would mean it was less likely for me to respond to the chemotherapy. So it was sort of good news, bad news. And that, um, and the doctor kept saying, he kept saying, I'm spooked by this. So it was like, here's the doctor, the best doctor in the world is spooked by something. And he said, we have no data on how to treat this. We have no data on the, the we have no studies on how this works. So, um, you know, again, I think if I had not had that wrinkle, I might not have written a book, but everything became a little more, the, the stakes kept getting higher and higher. And uh, because of this gene, the doctor wanted me to get six days of chemo six times in a hospital, which that was the initial plan. And then that was scaled back. But so I, I as I say, even though this was a treatable lymphoma, it had a kind of spin to it that made it um, a little more troubling. And, uh, but I am also happy to say that it's been five years and I haven't had a recurrence. So 
something something was going right. Um, I also was told I went to the doctor right away. And even though it took four months to be diagnosed because of a lot of different problems, the fact that I didn't wait two years was also good for my health. It was diagnosed at an early stage. Um, and that too, it helps your prognosis, I believe, in, in many cases. I can't say in all cases, but certainly in my case, I had a limited amount of disease in my body. It had not spread. So the next just footnote, as a writer, uh, I, I often write about my life. And suddenly there was this big story to tell. Um, and I was very reluctant to tell it because it's very personal. It's about my body. It was about other medical issues I had that that kept getting sort of um, confused with this issue and about my family, my husband, my stepdaughter and my friends. And, and so it was, I wasn't used to writing things that were, that would involve so much sort of uh, exposing exposure. Uh, and so it took quite a while for me to to decide to do this and quite a while to write the book uh, even though it's a pretty short book, it's 200 pages. I I wrote many, many versions of it before I, I, the one you're reading and the one that I hope your viewers will read. So I, I just wrote something down, but I'll get to that. Okay. Fascinating. Some things that you said here. So he lived in New York, which, you know, I mean, New York is always known as the Mecca, right? Financial services, fashion, right. sports. Or, yeah, I mean, we can go, you can go down the list, food, right? right? Like, you know. Medicine, medicine. medicine I mean, people come right? from all over the world. To come from all doctors. over. Yeah. It, it, like the medicine, for those that have never been to New York or have experienced this, you've got West Side, East Side, you got some downtown or Midtown, I guess, some Uptown. And there's like this competition and it's like there's these quadrants where, you know, certain institutions don't step over certain quadrants or patients don't go by, you know, they don't go past six to get health care because they stay between one and six and vice versa, you know, west side, east side. I've heard these stories. Right. And so the competition in medicine in the city is insane. It is absolutely insane. Medicine is a big business. And in New York City, it's, it's probably the biggest. So here you are in the Mecca. You've got access. Not going to tell you where you tell the audience where you live, but you probably have close access to a variety of really high quality on paper yeah. medical institutions. But here you are on the hamster wheel, to use an analogy here, mm -hmm. of just like not, not getting really good quality care. Or not, not, I wouldn't say quality care, but just not getting the answers that in, in right. this day and age in 2017, where, you know, we've got smartphones, we've got all these things, we've right. got all these great advances, but it, it took you kind of uh, talking to a friend to find this world-class doctor versus walking into like one of these great institutions and getting all the answers you need. Right. Or just getting my my own doctor to do a biopsy. I mean, that's all that was necessary. That that didn't happen for a long time. And there were a lot of doctors, it, it, you know, the, the the competition you're talking about, that that may exist. That that was not part of my life in in this situation. I just had I had a big lump under my arm and everybody wanted it to be a swollen lymph node. And so they kept saying, oh, it's a swollen lymph node. It's going to go down. And it's like, well, and but then the, the doctors would various doctors would touch it and they'd go, oh, that's huge. And that's not the right answer, you know. Um, and when and it was sonogrammed right away, it was mismeasured when it was sonogrammed. The first measurement was a mismeasurement, which I found out six weeks later. So everybody was saying, oh, see, it's this tiny little thing. And it was it was never a tiny little thing. But when doctors actually felt it, they said, oh, this is huge. But they didn't say you, it, it took like the fifth doctor to say we need to biopsy this right away. Mm. But any any um, and, and the radiologist said it should be biopsied. And then my 
nurse practitioner said, oh, well, let's do another round of sonograms. And it was like, and so there was all of this, and I had great health insurance, um, you know, and I actually upped my health insurance. I went from paying, I, I'm a freelance writer. Mm-hmm. I went from paying $800 a month, which is already ridiculous. I incorporated my business and I could get much higher health insurance, which cost me $1,800 a month. And I did that as soon as I found the lump because I knew what it might be. And I knew that I would need a higher level of care than my insurance or, or, or a, I, I, I knew that I would want to be able to go to any hospital or doctor I wanted to, and I couldn't with my insurance, but I had the resources to do that, but not indefinitely. I, you know, literally not indefinitely. I mean, this was sort of a splurge, let's say, but my life was on the line. Um, but it, it wasn't so much all this competition. It was just sort of doctors who, who, who didn't say, I've since spoken to a doctor who interviewed me about the book. And she said, any doctor can feel a lump. And this lump was in my armpit. It was not deep in my stomach, Mm -hmm. but no one could feel it. It was right here. Any doctor can feel something and know whether it's a swollen lymph node or something else. But these doctors kept saying, oh, no, no, it's a swollen lymph node. Or they kept saying, oh, that's huge. And then they would give me a test for something else instead of saying this needs to be biopsied right away. And a bi- and I didn't know I didn't know this terminology. I knew that I knew, you know, sort of like, oh, I knew sort of what a biopsy was. I mean, mm-hmm. I knew kind of what it meant. I didn't realize there are three stages of biopsies. And the simplest one, which they should have done right away was just they stick a needle, it's called an FNA, fine needle mm-hmm. aspiration. And if you if you get when you get mammograms and they find something in your breast, they do this immediately. They don't wait, they don't say oh, come back in a few weeks, talk to another doctor. If they find something the size of a, a, a grain of sand in your breast when they do a mammogram, they do a biopsy, they do an FNA. I I just wasn't from and that never happened to me. So I can't, I didn't have that sort of art, that arsenal of, of uh, experience. But of course, I know in general, right, what that's about. But no one, it took six weeks for a doctor to, to, to say that, like the fifth doctor. And so, and then there was a whole other adventure around that. But, uh, now and and so they should have just done a fine needle aspiration and what and then they take out some cells from the from the lump or the mass and then they put them on a a microscope and they uh, look at them and they they can tell only if they're abnormal cells they can't diagnose from that but they can tell if they're abnormal cells and if there are then they do a deeper level biopsy well nobody did that to me for months and that was the you know that was the um the pro- that that was the sort of the linchpin of the problem mm. that that people didn't say what what stop screwing around here let's just do this and you need to be you 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 and I can't do it and most doctors don't you have to be a pathologist but it's very basic it's like having a What's the word? Um, when you're a kid, you know, you have a, a, a science kit. It's like it's like science kit medicine. Right. You know, it's not uh, an MRI. And, well, and that was one of the problems. The thing that you did, I think that there's like a theme here, though, but like. I think we talked about this in the beginning um, before we record, like the system is like, if you don't know, you don't ask. Right. So right. you have to really right. advocate yourself. Do you feel as being like your background, you explain like, you know, novelist, journalist, I mean, you're, you're diving in deep, you're asking questions, you're used to doing that, um, you know, teaching the writing process and thinking, you know, I, I, I've, it's been a while since I've taken a, a writing class, but, you know, you, you I, I remember back to my days in college, you know, to really think and in, in that process, you think that aided in this whole 
scenario where you had this background, you know, as a, as a journalist and a novelist to kind of really think about, but then also asking the right questions? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was very, uh, I, I mean, my, my basic instinct, I went to the doctor. I mean, I found the lump at 11 o'clock at night and I went to the doctor at noon the next day. I would have shown up at the doctor's door the next day if they hadn't given me an appointment. So I was yeah. not I was not uh, shy about saying this is something serious. And so it wasn't that I was shy. It was just um, and and as I I didn't mention that I'm also a hypochondriac. So I'm, <laughs> I'm very hyper vigilant about my health. And so I I sort of thought, OK, so I'm going to the doctor and then like next week, I'll find out what this is. I, I didn't. And then I kept and. I went to the radiologist where I get my mammograms and which is like the best radiologist in New York, because they tell you right there, like you get the mammogram and they don't let you leave until they read the mammogram and tell you what's going on. So it's like, there aren't a lot of places that do that. So that's where I went. And they said, they said, okay, well, we see two swollen lymph nodes because one under the other and come back in two or three weeks. And if it's still, if it's unresolved, we'll do a biopsy or a PET scan. So, I mean, that was the, that was the first response. So I was like, okay. And then it was my nurse practitioner when I said, okay, they want me to get a PET scan now. She's like, no, we can't do that. So she, she, she said, it's too expensive and it's too invasive. And it was like, well, that was the, that was the sort of mind. And she said, we're so, your anxiety is very high, <clears throat> you have very high anxiety. Do you want to take some tranquilizers? It was like, what, what are you talking about here? My anxiety just. And when I went to her, I said, I want to get a biopsy or a PET scan. That's what they said. Mm-hmm. They, she said, no, you have to do some more sonograms. And it was like that, that moment of of dismissing me because a sonogram was too, a PET scan was too expensive. And I had this $1,800 insurance was, I, I don't, I don't understand it. Okay. But at the same time, that moment, if I had been my usual self, I would have said, I'm not leaving here until you give me a prescription. Mm-hmm. I'm just not. And now I would know to do that. But at the time I didn't quite know what a biopsy in, involved. I did, and I didn't know how involving it, how involved it was. If I had known, I would have said, "I need a fine needle aspiration now." Yeah, which is a simple. I just procedure. didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. But so, it, so, um, so, you know, in answer to your question, yeah, I mean, it helped me being. You know, I'm very vigilant. Can I just tell one more little story? Yeah. No. Absolutely. Okay. So I finally went to a, a real doctor who was a head and neck surgeon. And he said, I'm going to, we need to do a biopsy today. Our biopsy guy is here. And I said, I'm going on vacation tomorrow for three weeks. And I have a, but it was a work, it's a working vacation for me because of my college business. I had all these, I had all these appointments with clients and I had Mm -hmm. um, talks at libraries. And I said, going away for three weeks, I have all these appointments scheduled. If you tell me to stay here and get the biopsy, I'll do it. But if you tell me it's okay to do it when I come back, I'll do that. So I was, if he had said to me, no, you need to do this today, I would have done it. But he said, no, go ahead, go on your vacation. And you probably don't have cancer, he said. Well, of course I did have cancer, but, and then, but then when I went back, he did a biopsy and then he went on vacation. (laughs) And so it, it, Um, but two years later, I went back to that doctor and I said, when you told me I had, when you thought I didn't have cancer two years ago, did you really think I didn't have cancer? And he said, well, I thought there was a chance you had cancer. And I said, well, why did you say that? Why why did you tell me? I don't think you have cancer. And he said, because I knew that when you came back from your vacation, you were going to come and see me. I knew I I could see that about you because I'm so vigilant. And he said, He said, I just I have a patient right now who refuses to get the tests that he needs. And I said to him, if you don't get these tests, you're going to die. And that got his attention. He said, but I knew that that wasn't you. You were going to come back and get the tests. 
So in answer to your question, um, my my vigilance, I think, whether that was being a hypochondriac or a journalist did did help. But I was really I was still pushing a big boulder up a big hill the whole way. Which is crazy in this day and age, because not everyone knows that. Right. And and this is the importance of sharing a story. Question that popped up. And then I want to get into the book here. You mentioned, you know, you were, you know, in writing this book through your experience, something that you normally, you know, because it's personal, you're opening up, it's, it's, you know, not a great time, I'm sure. Have you ever thought that, you know, the, the cancer allowed you, I wrote here, allowing yourself to be vulnerable, to open up and to do that, which you said, like you probably wouldn't have, like that. There's very personal things in the book that you probably wouldn't have talked about. Mm-hmm. Well, um, I mean, yes, yes, and no. I I had written about myself a lot before. I just hadn't written. Um, I just hadn't written about my body. I, I wrote a book about how to write about sex. Okay, so yeah, I, I've kind of been out there um, writing about. I I I, I have. And I've written a lot about sex in my fiction and Mm -hmm. I've written a lot about my family. So I I think I've been very vulnerable in a lot of ways. It was just that vulnerability about those things. Um, And but, you know, so. So I I was sort of used to being vulnerable um, in writing. But this was, you know, as I say, this was. Um, I had to write a whole book. I mean, I'd written a lot of very personal essays, mm-hmm. but uh, writing a whole book, you have to really be prepared to uh, to go farther than you know you do in a in a twelve page essay. Um, so, uh, so yeah, I I think it was. I'm glad I was able to do it. I'm glad I. I sort of had the wherewithal to do it and that it was published and that it seems to be speaking to people and making one of the things uh, I wrote a, a little essay. I had two voices in my head when I was writing the book. And one of them was a friend who was a nurse practitioner who said, you have to write this book because so many people go through things like what you're going through and it would really be comforting to them. And so you have to write about this. And then I had another friend who's a, an editor of a literary magazine that I write for who said, I never want to read another cancer memoir. And so I was sort of having these people warring in my head and um, I wanted to to do what my friend said, which was to write a book that would be comforting to people, not a self-help book, but just a book about my experience in a deep level, at a deep level. But also I was listening to my friend saying, I never want to write another can rather read another cancer memoir. I wanted to write something that would be a little different from your the very predictable cancer memoirs that populate the world. And so I was very aware of trying to do that as well. And I I tried to do that with the way I told the story. So So, it was, there were a lot of uh, shoulds and shouldn'ts and a lot of barriers and uh, not barriers, obstacles to, to writing this book and to making it come out the way it did, which I think it, 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 a lot of people say is very funny. Um, I make fun of myself a lot. I make fun of, I, I should make, I, I guess I make fun of some of the doctors. Um, and I make fun of myself because I was so, so full of fear. I make fun of my fear and I make fun of my, uh, hypochondria. And, um, so there people, people comment a lot about how, funny the book is obviously it's a serious story but yeah well I, I i could say from my perspective so you know interviewing i don't know 100 plus 
cancer survivors, right? Over the years, I don't even know what the number is. It's a lot. I know it's over a hundred. I know one of the things that a lot of people have said, there's a lot of common threads, right? I, I, mm-hmm. I don't know how in depth you've gotten into like the, the whole survivorship, but I feel the one thing that I've heard um, from, uh, from a lot of them is comedy. Mm-hmm. And how that, you know, in, in comedy, in the sense, like I've had, I remember guests saying like, he'd come in the chemo suite and he was like, you know, Sebastian Maniscalco, you know, who's a popular comedian now, like that's, you know, that was his attitude going in. Like he was just going to crack jokes all day, you know, as he went through, you know, chemotherapy, which mm-hmm. anyone for any cancer is, is, a, is, a, is a, it's a bastard, right. Doing chemotherapy. Right. Um, it's not easy. And he just found comedy to get him through those sessions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then when he was home with his family, like he was a jokester, right? And we've heard, I've heard this from many people, you know, that, you know, comedy and, and you know, using comedy, you know, as, as kind of a, you know, a way, a coping mechanism mm-hmm. to get yeah. through the cancer and, yeah. you know, joking with the cancer, you know, having right. this internal dialogue with right. the cancer that it's a joke, you know, and it, it's just, you know, it's, it's almost comical. So I don't think that's uncommon. Uh, I, I think it's a, it's a very important piece of advice here for those listening. Um, because I, I think, you know, there's, there's this mental piece to all of this um, that we may talk about here that I think is very important, um, you know, with fighting cancer and all cancers. So let's talk a little bit about the book. Why should our listeners, watchers pick up the book? What are your, your, what's your, your main three reasons or a variety of reasons on why they should, should get the book and should, should read the book? Well, (laughs) um, I think as a writer, I'm not supposed to tell you how wonderful my book is. So, uh, but that would be a little, you know, a little braggy, right? Yeah. But, um, but I, I, I will just tell you what some other people have said. Can I, can I do that? I mean, absolutely. Okay. I mean, and not my mother. Okay. My mother's <laughs> not, not here to, to tell us, but um, so Lori Gottlieb, who wrote a very wonderful book, who's a therapist, wrote a book called Maybe You Should Talk to Someone that probably a lot of your listeners have have read or heard about. She writes, when I finished the book, I felt like I had made a new friend and all I wanted was to keep our conversation going. This is more than a memoir. It's an experience. Um, And a, a journalist named Thomas Beller who's a wonderful journalist, he says, as though Nora Ephron had written a book called I Feel Bad About My Tumor, which I love. That's one of the best things anyone's ever said about me. Um, And the Boston Globe said it was mesmerizing. And it says Elizabeth Benedict's eight Eighth book will mess with you in irresistible ways. Despite its scary subject, this chronicle reads more like a breathtaking whodunit or rather what done it. Benedict slings around language like a gunslinger. Hey, I'll take it. Um, it whips around language like a gunslinger. Um, so why should people um I think if you're if you're a cancer patient or if you're close to a cancer patient, or you think you might someday be close to a cancer patient, um, I think it gives gives people an idea of what you go through um and how and i i, I like to, to imagine or i like to believe that it, it can be comforting to hear that all the craziness that you have to deal with both from you know doctors who don't take you seriously which is a huge problem um to oh the um the agony and uh, the agonies of chemo and the the kind of mind bending experience of being a cancer patient, which you know, I, I like to think that I've captured some of those things in a way that's that's not uh, as as the kids would say depressing. Uh, it, it's sort of, and that's people's responses that I hear. It's not it's not a depressing book to read, even though the subject would might make you think that it is. Um, and 
I guess it, it, it's it, it's not a self-help book, but I like to think that it might help people going through this. Um, and I tried to make it, I know this sounds a little bit kind of cheesy, but I'm a writer and um, you have to entertain people. I mean, or else they're not going to read your stuff. You can't just write. It's not your diary. Nobody wants to read your diary unless you're, you know, some amazing person with an incredible life. But uh, as a writer, you have to entertain people enough so that they want to go from sentence to sentence. Correct. Um, and so I was very aware of writing something that would be, if you will, fun to read. I mean, you ha- it has to be fun to read, but of course, also interesting. I'm not writing a, um, med- well, I-, I am writing something of a medical mystery because people didn't know, I didn't know for a long time what was wrong with me. And I didn't, and once I was diagnosed, I didn't know what the outcome would be. I mean, cancer, the, the, people have said to me, why is cancer so different from like having heart disease? And one of the one of the many reasons it's different is because um, when you have heart disease, it's in one place in your body. Mm-hmm. When you have cancer, it could be, you know, any place in your body. But also the treatment for cancer it doesn't, you don't just get treated. You don't just have surgery and then you recover. It's, it's like a very long ongoing process with lots of unknowns and lots of um, unpredictable outcomes. And so, you know, it's sort of like a, um, it's like an, it's like raising a child, you know, it just sort of goes on and on and on. And you're never quite sure when the child is old enough to, you know, go away and leave you alone. And then they come back. Yeah, they come back, right? And they want to move into the basement, right? Yeah, yeah, that's a great analogy. And you know, well, I, I don't, I, I, I don't, it sounds very anti-child. I, I no, 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 but, but no. But, but if if we think about cancer, though, like, yeah, you're right. Like heart disease, it's like one and done. Like you can change your diet; it's in the heart. Like you can take, you know, statins or whatever, you know, to to cope with that problem. Cancer. And something you just said, just so powerful, like it's here, but it could be everywhere. (laughs) We also don't know like what, I mean, some cancers are very treatable, other cancers, not so great. Um, There's so many more unknowns, right? Mm -hmm. But though then cancer and yeah, heart disease does as well, but with lifestyle, with changes, you can, you know, keep that thing at bay. There's no guarantee with cancer that with changing your lifestyle, I mean, there are some, some statistics. So let me preface that by saying like, you know, if you're a heavy smoker, a heavy drinker and you get cancer and now you change your lifestyle. Yes. Statistically, then the odds go down of, of having reoccurrences um, by doing certain lifestyle changes, just like with heart disease, right. By exercising regularly, taking a statin or, you know, getting off statins or getting to a healthier place. The odds are, but the cancer, you know, to to in to use that analogy of children, like it's I think mentally for all cancer survivors, it's always in the back of their mind that that kid may come home one day. <laughs> or, or with with problems, right? <laughs> correct. Or as we know from a positive, like having a child in your life, for those that know this, if, if you're a parent, there's there's many positives, right? And and so maybe there are some things in life by going through these challenging times, just like childbirth and, and being I think being a parent, I have two, you you know, maybe you would speak to this as well, is is one of the most gratifying but most challenging jobs. Um, it's not a job, but challenging things you'll ever do in your life. Sure, um, of course. You know, with children similar to cancer, right? It, yeah, I mean, I don't want. I, I think it's. I thing. think. I think we shouldn't do the children equals cancer because that's yeah, like no, very yeah, anti. No, I, yeah, but, yeah. So, but, but there's like some similarities there, yeah. I guess. And and I guess like my my point here is like, you know, for for there, there's this there's this piece of there's like these stages, and, and oftentimes we focus on the diagnosis, mm-hmm. but then there's the treatment and then there's the post. Right. And I think there's, right. there's not enough talk about this post mm-hmm. piece here. And with certain cancers, there's a lot of challenges. Life doesn't right. just go back to normal. Um, there's, you know, physical things that happen, you know, 
there's lifestyle changes that have to happen. So I guess there, you know, in, in, in sense of a timeline, I think as society, we are so focused on diagnosis, treatment, and then you're, that's it. And right. I, I feel like there's this whole other end and it's a big, heavy lift here right. <laughs> for a lot of people. Um, and, and so I think that's maybe a better analogy to use just in this, in this sense okay. of, of that. So okay. um, I love a quote and there was a quote here on the page and, and this was from a, a faculty member at Harvard, which I think is just so powerful, which says this should be required for medical students, residents and physicians as an ideal teaching tool. Um, and I'm going to butcher this last name, but it's Kathy Nikjad. Nick Nikjad. Nick Nikjad, who's MD faculty at Harvard Medical School, um, which is just so important. I think this kind of brings us back to the very beginning, right? Like, what if that first, you know, we, we talk about that FNA, that fine needle aspiration. What if that first doctor had read the copy of your book? You know, would that be different? You know, would that process be different? Um, and, and so my my almost we're almost coming here to the end of our episode here um, was my next question for you is how is the how has writing this book changed your life? Um, well, for a long time, I was for, for much of the time that I was sick. And then in the years since then, I didn't tell a lot of people that I had been sick or that I had cancer, I could barely say the word. And I, I have a lot of close friends who knew, but I also had a lot of friends who didn't know because say they, they, I didn't see them there. They live in another country or they live in, uh, I, I, they weren't in New York. And so there were a number of people I was very close to that I didn't say anything to. And, um, and, you know, if I, and I mean, this went on for years and and then the pandemic happened so you know yeah. there was a lot of silence after that but uh so writing the book has allowed me to be more open about this huge thing in my life and to connect with people who've also been sick and to talk to the people who uh didn't know that I was sick whom some of whom I'm very close to and um so it's and it's also uh, so, so it's kind of unburdened me, right? I didn't have to keep this big secret. Um, also, it's been interesting. I've, I've contacted people that I wasn't in touch with to come to book events. And they say, oh, yeah, I had cancer, too. And they hadn't told me. Um, at many people. Um, and, and people my age, people younger, people older. And everyone's here. So, you know, it's sort of, it, it's, um, it's a, it's allowed people to talk more openly with me and for me to talk more openly and also to hear about other people's cancer adventures and also to see and to learn how, how differently, how different outcomes are now than they were 20 years ago. Now, having said that, I have a very good friend who died of cancer last week. Um, so not all outcomes are great, but the um the the, the there's so there's so many new treatments and so many really what's the word break breakthrough treatments in the last 10, 20 years. It's really inspiring. And uh, um, when I wrote, when I was, my my wonderful doctor, uh, whom I was afraid to ask a lot of questions of, I wrote to him when I was writing the book and I said, well, if I if I had the courage to ask you questions about all of this, what would you have said? And it turns out that, and he's and I said, well, what if my cancer came back? And he said, well, there are new treatments from 2017 that we would use now from 2017. And uh, so seeing the kinds of breakthrough treatments there are has been really. I don't know, uplifting, right? It's so awesome. And I, and I feel podcast not to give us like a self-loathing thing here but like you know like put us on a pedestal but like advocacy groups 
people like yourself coming out um, and writing about their experiences. All this awareness, this is like the groundswell. I said, we, we just need more. We need more and more and more of this. And so uh, I appreciate you coming out and you didn't have to write a book about what you went through. You could have probably gone a, along your, your typical day job and keep writing about what you were writing versus writing about your own experience. Um, so it's awesome that people do this and help amplify awareness for all cancers. I do believe that one day we will get really, really good at managing all cancers. I hope it's sooner than later for a lot of people that are going to the fight today and, and tomorrow um, and the next day. Um, but this is what we've got to do. We've got to keep amplifying. We've got to keep sharing stories, um, keep raising awareness. Um, but eventually that will happen. My last question here, um, this is always kind of our, our last question. I, I switch it up a little bit here for the purpose of this conversation. There's no right or wrong to this. And then we're going to share where our audience can learn more about your book and connect with you. I know you're going on a, a book tour you're, or you're doing some, some book stuff um, in person too. Um, but my last question here, and as I said, there's no right or wrong to this, but given your exp experience, how do you define the term cancer? How do I define it? Uh, I, I, it's a diagnosis that um, I, I, I have to tell you, I, I, this is not something I've thought about. Um, <laughs> That's why I asked it. Okay. I'm not a doctor. I mean, it's a diagnosis that too many people get. Um, and uh, it, for a long time, it was a word we couldn't even say, right? That we would say the C word. Or I had I knew somebody who who pronounced it backwards, recknac, because they couldn't say it, and you couldn't say it, and and I couldn't say it for the longest time because it was so um, scary. Right? It was like you know saying murder, you know. Um, so it's this really scary word because for so long it's been associated with death because cancer equals death. You know the way AIDS AIDS equals death mm -hmm. used to be a. Mm -hmm slogan in the early decades of AIDS. Now, now it's not so much. Um, but so cancer does not equal death anymore in many cases. Uh, but obviously it's a disease. It's, it's, you know, cells growing where they shouldn't be growing, cells multiplying in ways they shouldn't be. And, um, you know, I guess it, 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 what's the word? I, it, um, it triggers all kinds of associations. And I guess to the extent we can defuse some of those negative associations and get people to go to the doctor ASAP, uh, the better the better we'll all be. And to be a good advocate for yourself and to uh to know some of these terms, you know, like FNA and get a biopsy and don't let people jerk you around. Anyway, I hope I'm not sure. I'm not sure I did too well on that one, but you, you nailed it. There's no right or wrong. It's, it's your definition. And I think it's powerful um, what you said, um, because it is this scary term, um, but knowledge is power, you know, having awareness. Again, I go back to, you know, Hey, you wrote a book. Um, you found inspiration through your own personal experience. And that's so powerful. Um, it's powerful for people that know you. It's powerful for people that don't know you. Um, someone who may go through a very similar diagnosis or maybe a total, complete different cancer. Um, but we're raising and amplifying, inspiring people. And, and that's what we need more of. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Unfortunately, a lot of times uh, there's other things happening in society that, that drown kind of this positivity out. Um, and there's all factors and that's, that's another podcast episode, but uh, I think it's just powerful. The, the more power, the more information, uh, the more, the more knowledge, the more awareness that patients have as they go through that journey, it, it just, the, the, the outcomes are positive. And, and that's hopefully what we're doing here on the podcast. And you as, as an author writing about this is, you know, I, I I won't put words in your mouth, but I hopefully that's part of the outcome that you want to have. You know, someone reading yeah. the book, you know, has a much different experience than you because of your experience. Yeah, I certainly hope that's the case. Absolutely. 
So on that note, where's the best place? I know you've got a couple of things. I know website, social media, uh, but mm-hmm. someone listening to the podcast or watching, you know, a clip here uh, to learn more, to to hopefully buy the book, mm-hmm. um, and and maybe even come out and see. I know you're you're on a little mini tour, depending on where you are located, uh, doing some stuff for the book. Where's that place to find out more? Okay, so the best place to find out what's going on is my website. The name of the book is Rewriting Illness, A View of My Own. And the website is my name, elizabethbenedict.com. You can just Google the um, my name and you'll get to my website. You'll get to my Wikipedia page. If you go to Amazon, you can look up my name. You can find that book. You can find many of my other books. I'm not hard to find. And um, if you want to write me an email, um, I love getting emails from people. And uh, so anyway, elizabethbenedict.com. And I'm on social media, but go to my website first. And that that's where there's a lot of information about the book and my other books and lots of the articles I've written on different subjects. And um, enjoy. Awesome. Awesome. And Liz, you are doing an audio book I, I saw on your yes. social media, right? So this will be available via audio on Amazon, yes. I would assume, or wherever you download yeah. books. Yeah, I think Audible and probably Amazon. It's coming out uh, sometime in August. I don't have the date, but it should probably, I'm guessing more toward the end of August. But the book is now, it's a paperback. It's an original paperback. So it's not going to set you back a lot of money. You can also read it on Kindle. You can read it, you know, you can press a button and it'll be in your computer five seconds later. So if you you have trouble with uh, delaying gratification, it's very easy to find and to start reading immediately. I love it. I love it. Liz, thank you for being on the Project Purple podcast and sharing your story. Of uh, I wrote so many great comments here, but one you put is just being vigilant. And, and that's just so powerful for our audience to hear. Great. Okay. Well, thank you so much for having me. And, and good luck with everything you're doing to advance these many causes and to spread awareness super important and also to raise money. Thank you. Okay. Thank you for listening to another episode of the project purple podcast. If you like today's episode, please share this episode and follow the project purple podcast, wherever you listen to podcasts. That is a wrap of another episode on the project purple podcast. Thanks for listening. Until next time, please be safe. <laughs>